following message is from Narrative Church, a Lutheran church located in Williamson County, Texas. For more information, go to www.narrative.church. If you want to open up your Bible, we are going to be in this Mark chapter 12, and we're looking at those verses where we started this morning, which is going to be verses 1 through 12. So Mark 12, 1 through 12. If you've got a Bible with you, if you've got something on your phone, feel free to open it up. We'll also jump back to see where this is coming from Mark 11, how we're figuring that out. Let's start off with a word of prayer. Lord, we ask this morning as I preach, open our hearts to hear your word anew. Let us hear this parable and let it affect us and change us. Your son, Jesus' name. Amen. So I want you to think about what it was like renting your first house or apartment. Try to think back to what that was like. I'm guessing it was probably a step up from the camping you'd be doing on the stage for whatever production is happening here at the school, right? I hope most of you were not renting a tent for your first home, but maybe you were. You know, that's the cool new thing, right? Build out a sprinter van or take a tent and just car camp your way around the world. Uh, No thanks, I like having a bathroom. But think about that first apartment. Our first apartment was a place in St. Louis, 7220 West Park Avenue. We were in two different units in this house. It looked like a frat house. But what it was was it was just this big six-apartment building because we were kind of close into the city in St. Louis, so it wasn't like apartments like you would find here where it's a complex. It was just this one house, and it was brilliant. It was so well-maintained. It was this great spot to be. And I don't know how many of you have been in a basement, right? There are these things. They don't often have them in Texas. They build below the ground. And so we had a basement, and we had toured a couple of different places. And what you find out when you're in St. Louis and you're touring these different little apartments that are a little bit older is you get into the basement and you go, oh, this is where the landlord has decided to store all their junk, right? They probably own maybe this apartment building and a couple others. And so what they have done is they've taken all their junk from their house, from their other rental spaces, and they've said, we'll just stick it all down here. But I remember walking into this basement. It was immaculate. We could have played floor hockey in this basement. It was so open, and there was one one time about midnight, the storm sirens start going off that there are tornadoes, and Chelsea and I being, you know, good Central Texas kids, we know what that means. Hey, we, we have a step up than just the bathroom with no windows. We're going to go to the basement. So we grab some blankets and some pillows, and we just go to the basement because it was a cold October night, and so we go down there, and we're the only ones down there. And we're going, our neighbors are all going to die, but we're going to be alive because we went to the basement. That was our first place. Our second place was here in Georgetown, and it was in Old Town. Well, this is Round Rock. It was in Georgetown. Um, And it was an older house. It was this cool little house in Old Town on 17 and a half street, which really confused people. And so we were on this spot, 17 and a half street, huge yard, cool spot, back off the 
um, street a little ways, but you could tell this was someone's investment. They had bought this house when it was cheap and said, I'll rent it out. Because when we got in there, it was just pure comedy. So we come to this house and we're moving from St. Louis for seminary down into this house and we rent it sight unseen by us. My in-laws had gone and looked at it, looked it over for us. They said, oh yeah, this is going to be a great spot. And it was an incredible spot. It just had these funny little tweaks. One of them being that the previous tenants were supposed to have moved out. Tricky thing when you rent a place. And they were very intense about when we needed to move in. Because we were moving from St. Louis, and they were like, you must be in. It was like June, you know, 4th or 5th. You must be in by this time. So we did one of those pods. We fit our entire life in a pod. We have it delivered. There were some great people from Faith Lutheran, our sending church, that showed up to help us unload all of this stuff. And I get the keys, and I open the garage door, because I'm like, how great is this? We have a garage attached to the house, and we can kind of, you know, put some stuff in here, and then later we'll, you know, move it where it needs to be. And we open up the garage, and it is full of the previous tenant's stuff. And we're not talking like, oh, here's, you know, they forgot a bag or they forgot, you know, two boxes. No, here are their mattresses and their bed frames and their golf clubs and like their dresser. And I call up the, the company that was doing the, you know, the managing of this property and I said, hey, do I get some money back? Because you told me I had to be in by today and their stuff is still here. And they go, oh, um, oh, well, it wasn't supposed to be. I'm like, well, I get that. But it's still here. So we start moving our stuff in, and there's this kind of, it was this weird setup. And there are three bedrooms. One is a bedroom. They obviously turned like a back porch into a master bedroom. So it was kind of this weird three bedrooms and a bathroom. But it was a great spot. Well, the front bedroom we started unloading stuff, and there's a fist-sized hole still in the drywall. So now I'm calling the management company again. I'm going, listen, I knew this was here, but you said it was going to be taken care of. And they're like, oh, yeah, the handyman will be out in a week. I was like, thanks. <laughs> you knock a little rent off. They didn't. But then the handyman shows up. He calls me, and he goes, Listen, so I'm going to patch this, but so you know. And he puts his hand into the wall. He goes, this is the outside. And he's touching, you know, the exterior wall. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's how houses work. But he goes, no, 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 there's no insulation. And I'm very young. And I go, well, I don't own the house. So I'd say just, you know, fill the drywall. He goes, listen, I see sunlight coming through from the outside. I'm like, I hear you. I can't put insulation in here. So he fixes the drywall. And the comedy of this place, it was such a brilliant place to live with all these little quirks. You come to the front door, you know, put your key in during the summer, and you felt the AC even before you opened the door. What a great concept here in Texas to be like, ah, preparing me to enter the AC. 
it was mind-blowing to me that we went from this 900-square-foot house, maybe it was 1,000, to an 1,800-square-foot house we're in now, and my electric bill went down. When it would rain and you'd be in the bathroom, you'd be worried because you'd go, all the water's off in here. What is it? That was the water flowing under the house. The pier and beam that just had kind of happened. Or maybe it was the time that the AC stopped working. The AC guy comes out and goes, oh yeah, and he pulls out the filter and goes, oh, this doesn't look like it's been changed. I was like, well, we've been here a year, and I can guarantee you I didn't change it. And I don't think the guys before us changed it. So that's probably three years. And luckily, that's what he told the owner. Because the owner said, I heard it hasn't been changed in three years, so I'll take care of this $3,000 bill. I was like, thank you. But there were things we took care of. Cut the lawn, raked the leaves, picked up the pecans. You know, did all these things. Because when we were in the house, we, even though it wasn't ours, even though it had all these quirks, we wanted to take care of it. When we were in St. Louis, I remember shoveling snow, which just don't move north because, like, I can sweat and mow the lawn, but the thing with sweating and mowing the lawn is I know it ends. The problem with shoveling snow is you shovel snow, and you know what happens? More snow comes. Or the worst is when your car is parked, and you shovel out all around it, and then you realize, if I move my car, someone's going to take my spot. Why did I shovel out this car? But there was something instilled in me when I was a kid that even though it wasn't mine, I want to take care of it. When we came to this school originally, we said we want to be more than just renters. We get this school, the cafeteria and the commons, for about five hours on a Sunday morning and a couple times throughout the year. But we want to be more than that. Because we want to be good tenants. If you've ever been a landlord, you know the difference between good and bad tenants. And I'm sure you definitely know the difference between good and bad tenants when they move out. And so we get this parable this morning where Jesus goes and talks about tenants in a vineyard. And it has application to who he's talking to, but it also has application for us. So if we go back and we look at the end of verse of chapter 11. So we're in the beginning of chapter 12, but really to help us understand this parable, who Jesus is talking to, what he's talking about, we have to start in chapter 11, verse 27. So Jesus came into Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. This was, and he says, I'll ask you one question. Was the baptism of John, so this is John the Baptist, from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? 
They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So Jesus comes into Jerusalem. This is preparing for Holy Week. He finally has come into Jerusalem. This is the point where we've skipped around a little bit in chapters. That next Sunday, Palm Sunday, we'll do that, what we call the triumphal entry. We'll read that scripture, which actually takes us back in the book of Mark. But here they've already come into Jerusalem. And as they're there in the temple, the religious elite come up to him and are trying to catch him. They're trying to prove that he is wrong. And so they go, hey, by whose authority are you doing all of these things? Now this is interesting that they would ask that because all of these things that he has done have been good things. He's been teaching people about the kingdom of God. He's been healing people from ailments they had suffered with their entire lives. He's declaring that the kingdom of God is coming, but they are so worried about their own power, their own lifestyle, that they're looking at him and they say, by whose authority do you do this? Because they know if they catch him in saying it wrong, they can take care of him. So Jesus takes it in response to them in a question. He pushes them back to John the Baptist and says, okay, if you want to ask about my authority, whose authority was John baptizing people under? Was that from heaven or from man? And they huddle up. Which you always know is like not going to go well for the Pharisees and the scribes and the elders when they get together to try and decide something. Because actually what we don't hear a lot in Scripture is we see a lot of times the Pharisees and the scribes, called the Sadducees, that they would come together and gang up. But like in real life, they did not like each other. They actually fought with each other. Jesus was just the common enemy. So he's bringing these enemies together. And they go, okay, if we say it's from God, then we have to acknowledge that what he's doing, you know, is more powerful. But if we say it's from man, well, then the people might rise up against us because they see John as a prophet. So what if we just say we don't know? And Jesus goes, thank you. Not going to tell you. So as he enters the temple, there's this immediate pushback against his authority. There's this pushback against who he is and what he's doing and what he's done. And so he responds with a question to catch them in their own pride. And then he says it like this. He goes to a parable. And real quick aside, remember when we talk about a parable, a parable is an earthly story with kingdom significance. So a parable, an earthly story with kingdom significance. So Jesus talks about it and he says, there's this man, he builds a vineyard. He Not only does he build it, he plants it, he puts everything you need in to make wine. And then he says, you know what, I'm going to go out of the country. I'm going to rent this out to tenants. So the tenants are there and then he says, hey, I've got this vineyard. I want, I want some of the fruit of that vineyard. So he sends one of his servants and the servant gets beat up and returned to him, so he sends another and another and another. They end up starting to kill 
the servants, not only beating them, but killing them. So finally he says, okay, they don't respect my servants, so I will send my son to them. They must respect my son. And instead the reaction is not, oh, here's the son, we better slow down and back up. No, instead they say, hey, he's the heir. If we kill him, we get the inheritance. Which is foolish in two ways, right? It's foolish in the way of going, if they're saying we're going to kill the son and get his inheritance, that all of a sudden, you know, the owner is going to go, oh, you're right, I didn't love that son, here's the inheritance. Right, probably not that. Probably more along the lines of going, this is how we grab hold and take care of this place. Is if we kill the son, there's no one to inherit this property so it becomes ours, which also seems very foolish. But it's how the tenants react. So as we look at this parable, an earthly story with kingdom significance, we can see very clearly the characters laid out. This is actually one of those times where Jesus tells a parable, and it's very clear who he's talking about. So much so that even the, fri- the scribes and Pharisees get that it's about them. Because you have the owner, the owner being God, the one who creates, who builds. The tenants being the religious elite, the chosen people. The servants being the prophets. If you go through the Old Testament, you will find the major and the minor prophets. And prophets are people who were sent to God's people to warn them that they were turning from God's ways. And you know what happens to them? They get beaten, mocked, and killed. A lot. And what's fascinating is by this point, though, the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, they're looking back on the prophets. They're using the words of the prophets as Scripture So they're going, well, that's not us. We're not the ones who beat the prophets. We follow the prophets. But here Jesus comes in as that beloved son of the owner. And they are coming along and they are going to kill him. He began to speak to them in parables, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. God who has created, he comes and as the man plants, the man puts a fence around, he builds the wine press, he builds a tower to watch over it all. So too God who comes, creates the world, brings it in brilliance. He leased it to tenants. So God builds, creates the world. He gives it to humanity. He says, hey, this is yours. This is the gift I give to you. But it's fascinating because even after the fall of man, God begins and chooses a people. Through Abraham and his line, he chooses a people. And he says, you are my people. So when God is talking through this parable, as Jesus teaches it, when they say the tenants, what he's referring to is the chosen people, the people of Israel. To say those people who were called out, who I have given 
this too. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and they beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. So Jesus sends, or the master sends these servants. God sends his prophets. And the purpose of them was not to take back what was given, not to take back the land. It was just to say, here are the fruits. You're taking care of this place, so I'm just, I'm just asking for the fruits of some of the labor. We even see in the Old Testament that the prophets were scorned, were mocked, were beaten. Because the tenants began to think of themselves. So to the people of Israel, as you look at their history, when God said, I will be your God and you will be my people, there was no king as an intermediary. But they looked around them and they saw around them the peoples and the empires and they said, well, we want that. We want a king who will make us great. So God finally gives in and gives them a king and things start going downhill from there and the people keep turning further and further from God. So what does God do? He sends prophets. And prophets, a lot of times we think of prophets in what I'll call the Harry Potter paradigm, which is that there's this whole kind of piece throughout Harry Potter and even like a key in one of the books where it's all based on the prophecy. We have to know the prophecy of what's to come. That's not what we're talking about here. There are prophecies of Jesus who is to come, but the prophets were people who would come to point out to the people the ways they had left the ways of God. They would come in and they would point out and say, listen, you're doing this thing, that's not of the Lord. You're following after this way, that's not of Him. You need to turn back to God. And what often happens is that they are scorned, they are beaten, they are thrown away because they look and they go, well, we don't want to do that. And so as Jesus is telling this parable, he's helping this ruling elite to connect and say, listen, I sent the prophets to tell you to turn. And you beat them and you killed them. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. So this is Jesus being prophetic about himself. That he's saying he is more than a prophet. He is the beloved son. And that instead of seeing the coming Redeemer, instead of seeing the Son who has come to make great the vineyard, the tenants look and what they see is if we kill him, then we get all the power. We get all the authority. That will belong to us. And Jesus keeps going. What will the owner of the vineyard do? 
He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. They were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. A lot of little things in that section. First, Jesus says, hey, you know what the owner's going to do? You think he's going to be kind to the people who killed the heir? What about this? And he quotes to them from the Psalms. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Psalms would have been something they had known and memorized, especially these people who were the elite among the religious. So he quotes to them from Scripture saying, that stone that you rejected has become the cornerstone. And then I love this. Throughout the book of Mark, whenever we get a parable, so often, immediately following it as Jesus teaching the disciples, this is what it's about, dummies. Because they don't get it. But here in this moment, the ruling elite go, oh, this is about us. Jesus makes it pretty clear. And so they start plotting his downfall and they leave because he was popular amongst the people. So what is Jesus doing here? Why even tell this parable? Well, he has seen the challenge to his authority. He has seen what has come, that they are trying to tear him down. He goes, listen, no, 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 no. You don't get to do that. You can challenge me. You can be against me. But when you ask where my authority comes from, you know where it comes from. You've heard what I've said. So why are you asking now? So he pushes back first with that question about John's baptism and then with this parable to say, this is who you are. This is what you're going to do. Now, it's very interesting that there at the end, he says he will take the vineyard and give it to others. Because the prevailing belief is that if we are the chosen people of God, if we are the religious elite of the people God has chosen to do this mighty thing in the world, then the kingdom is ours and no one else's. And so when Jesus says he will take the vineyard and give it to others, he is saying, listen, you think you're the chosen people? You're not. This is going to be given to others. Because you see what had happened at that time was the blindness to what the kingdom of God was going to be. What they were expecting was a return of the Israelite empire as was seen under David and Solomon. That's what they thought was that they had hoped that when the kingdom returned, they would crush the Romans, they would destroy them, and then they would start spreading their empire throughout the world because that was the promise of the Messiah, is that he would come and destroy all those who had put their foot upon the people of Israel. But Jesus has been telling them over and over and over again that the kingdom is not of this world. So when he says the vineyard will be given to others, he is speaking to this idea saying, listen, the kingdom of God is going to be open to all people. 
You were the chosen people because the Messiah was coming out of your line. But the Messiah is here. And thanks be to God that the kingdom is opened to all people because that's us. Now there's temptation here, and this passage and others like it have been used in the past for very anti-Semitic reasons. To say, oh look, the tenants, you know, those are the evil Jewish people, and look at that. Listen, a lot and most of the early Christian church is Jewish people. What Jesus is speaking to is a sinful group of people who have ruled for their own benefit to take over the kingdom. So what he is saying is he's like, listen, the kingdom's going to be taken from you. You who have lorded over others, who have acted like the Gentiles, who have used the name of God for power and money, that is going to be taken from you. And you are going to kill the heir and it's going to have the opposite effect. That instead of gaining the inheritance, it is going to be given to those who you hate. And so the early church forms after Jesus propelled forward. Not only by the people of Israel, but by Gentiles as well. That the kingdom is open to all people. So what does a story like this mean for us today? And there was one question that just hit me. I was talking about this. My parents were in town. I'm writing my sermon, and my mom's there. I was sharing with her to get her wisdom on this. And she shared this brilliant idea, and I kind of fleshed it out, and it was, when do we try to get the inheritance by killing the son? We can't remove ourselves from this story and say, yeah, hey, we're the people, we didn't do anything. How many times in our own lives do we hear the word of God and push it aside because we go, I don't like that. That's not great for my lifestyle. Lord, I want more of me. And so the prophetic word given to us, right? We don't have the same kind of prophets sent by God in the same way as the Old Testament though I believe there are people with prophetic gifts, but we have the word of God given to us, which shows us that blessing. And how often do we look and we go, well, Lord, I don't like that. And so we cut that out. Lord, I don't like being kind to people. These people deserve it. Lord, I don't like that these people are different than me, so I'm just going to push it to the side. Lord, I don't like following and living the way you've told me to follow and live, so I'm just going to let that go. Lord, I'm going to let my own morality rule instead of the morality that you've put forth for me in my created being. But hey, I still want the benefits. Well, that's us wanting the inheritance by killing the Son. That for us, as we hear this passage, as we think about the gift that we've been given, how often do we take that gift and spit on it? Because we want the power, we want the authority. You see, the good news for us on this side of the cross is that even when we do, Jesus forgives 
that we can hear a story like this and it can convict us to change our ways. Being a Christian is not about doing the things you like. There are going to be things you really enjoy about being a follower of Jesus. And there are going to be things you do not like. Why? Because your sinful self does not enjoy following God. And for all of us, that's going to be different. And listen, conviction doesn't feel good. When someone calls us out on our sinful behavior, that doesn't feel good. We want to react back and yell and scream. But when the Word of God convicts us to change our lives, we can go one of two ways. We can be tenants that say, well, let's kill the son and get the inheritance. Or we can be stewards. We can say, Lord, all of this is yours. And when I mess up, I revert to you and not to me. I go back to your will and your ways. And the good news of the gospel is that you're going to do that over and over, but there is forgiveness on the times you fail. There's a theological idea um, called simultaneously saint and sinner that this side of heaven, we have both those things in us. I have a good buddy, Mark, who takes that and says, yeah, I get it, but I want to make sure people understand. We are not sinners who are trying to work ourselves to be saints. We are saints claimed by the blood of Jesus, have the waters of baptism poured over us. But before Jesus returns, we still struggle with sin. So return to that identity. In those times where you want the power, where you want the authority, remember whose it is. But remember the forgiveness you have when you mess it up. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts to see you. Let us rejoice in the good news of Jesus for us. Lord, may we more and more every day come to know you. May we heed the convictions of the Holy Spirit given to us through your word and through the body of Christ to return to you. Lord, in those times where we become the tenants who want to kill the messenger, may we slow down and grapple with our own sin to return to Jesus over and over to remember the good news of the kingdom for us. We pray this on your son Jesus' name. Amen.